Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. It's getting to be a very busy time on the National Football League calendar. You got all the coaching openings that have been filled now. And in in addition, um, we're basically in an eight-day period that is the most wonderful time of the year. The four uh, divisional round games have all been played. And now this week we enter into the championship game weekend which will start at 3 o'clock Eastern on Sunday uh, with Tennessee at Kansas City. And then at 6.40 p.m., there will be the Green Bay Packers in a rematch. Actually, both games are rematches. Green Bay at San Francisco. To get you warmed up for this week of football, we're going to bring you Joe Buck, Fox's voice of the NFL. We're going to talk a little bit of baseball and a lot of football in our conversation with Joe Buck. And then Harry Carson of the Fritz Pollard Alliance. As you may know, Harry Carson's a Hall of Fame linebacker, uh, obviously formerly with the New York Giants, now is doing his best with the Fritz Pollard Alliance to try to increase the very poor numbers of African Americans in the head coaches and in feeder positions to be head coaches in the NFL. That's where I want to start. I wrote a little bit. Uh, this week in the lead to my column about some ideas that I had going forward that the NFL uh, should adopt uh, and I hope will at least strongly consider adopting. And I want to talk about three of them in particular. One, the, the Rooney Rule, which was enacted in 2003, the big part of the Rooney Rule was that Every head coaching opening, there was a mandatory interview of at least one minority candidate uh, for every head coaching opening. Well, I'm going to mandate two. One isn't working. Something has got to give. uh, And owners have to be involved in these meetings. They can't delegate these meetings out uh, to general managers and team presidents. The owners have to be in there. In addition, I would like to see Every team have one of three big feeder positions to be head coaches. The offensive quality control coach, the quarterback coach, and the offensive coordinator. I would like to see one of those three positions be mandated to be an African-American coach or a minority coach. And a lot of people, ever since I wrote that on Monday of this week, were recording this podcast on Tuesday Uh, I've heard from a lot of people saying you can't force owners to hire somebody uh, that they don't want to hire. And I get that. Um, But I wonder if it is remotely fixable unless you mandate that owners put people into positions to start climbing the ladder to make sure that there are going to be more and more minority candidates um, to to interview. You look at what happened in Washington this year, and their three, uh, their their offensive coordinator, their quarterback coach, and uh, quality control coach are all white. And again, look, that's one team. We could look at every team, which we're not going to do here. But I'm just saying that it is it's easy in this business to hire your friends and to not be challenged to make hires that are going to be a little bit different. Um, I just think that more and more coaches and owners need to be exposed to more and more of the candidates. And finally, thirdly, I think this is important. I I would like to see the Rooney rule be extended to the coordinator positions, which would mean that every coordinator opening of a new on a new coaching staff, you'd have to interview at least one minority. And is that going to force anybody to hire uh, these coaches, not necessarily, but but let's just say there's a really good position coach, you know, who's stuck behind a quality coordinator somewhere, a really good position coach uh, who's an African-American coach, and he's not going to get a chance because his own team maybe has a young, very strong, very good defensive coordinator. Those are the kind of guys, in my opinion, that the NFL needs to be out there promoting a little bit more so that upward movement can happen with minority coaches in the NFL. So we're now going to get to our interviews. We're going to start with uh, with Joe Buck, the longtime voice of Fox Sports. And Joe not only has a unique perspective 
on all things Green Bay, San Francisco. We'll get to that. But I also want to get his view on what was you know, the biggest sanctions in a century uh, to be meted out by the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, or by any commissioner. So let's get to now Joe Buck. Joe obviously is the voice of Fox Sports, uh, and he just finished doing the Green Bay uh, extravaganza up in Green Bay with Troy Aikman. And obviously he will be the lead voice on Fox for the NFC championship game in San Francisco, the Packers 49ers rematch. Uh, Joe, really happy you could join me today. Thank you. Yeah. Well, my God, you're Peter King, for God's sake. When Peter King calls or texts, <laughs> come on my podcast. I mean, there's, there's really not a hell of a lot going on in my life or where the answer would be no. So you, you carry that kind of weight, not just with me, but with many others. So good to well, be on. You're a, you, you're a good man. Thank you, Joe. I want to start if, if you're okay with this, with talking about baseball, because look, I haven't followed this all that closely, the sign stealing scandal, but obviously you do Fox baseball as well. And just wanted to get your reaction to what we saw out of uh, Rob Manfred when basically he kind of eviscerated the Houston Astros. Uh, they're basically their general manager and manager were suspended a year and then fired. And they got their four highest draft choices taken away for the next two years. Did not get um, the World Series results annulled. Uh, but... Uh, I thought it was really a strong signal. I don't know. How did you feel about it? Yeah, no, I, I felt pretty much the same way. I think for some, anything short of taking away a World Series title uh, wouldn't be enough. But I, I don't know that that's realistic. I, I think Rob Manfred did uh, the most he could, and I think it was appropriate. Uh, I know just from where I sit, it's disappointing that that was going on and disappointing is a weak word. I mean, it's kind of gross that that was going on. Uh, and you wonder just how pervasive this is. I, I have a tough time believing that they are the only team involved in this and guilty of this. I know that the investigation, you know, turns up a lot of different avenues of, of information. I'll, I'll be interested to see, you know, when the entire report comes out, um, you know, wh how, where that leads. I'm, I'm amazed on one hand because so many players change teams that if you did something that egregious, you would think that it wouldn't get out eventually uh, because, you know, all of a sudden you've got a pitcher that was in your bullpen now in the bullpen of some other team trying to get hitters out that you now know are getting your signs. It seems like that would come out a lot sooner than it actually did. Uh, but again, I, I, I have a tough time believing that the Astros are the only team guilty of this, and we'll we'll wait and see where it goes. But it it just strikes at the core of of fairness. It strikes at the core of sportsmanship, and uh, I'm glad the commissioner came down as heavy as he did on the Astros. And and again, we'll see where this goes after after this with other teams. Hard to imagine that Alex Cora would not uh, get the same fate. It's almost like, uh, from what limited I've read about it, it's almost like he was the ringleader with this. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I, I don't know any more than I've read. I, I have not talked to anybody inside the commissioner's office specifically about this. Um, I have talked to some players, both current and former players, and it's interesting to get their perspectives on it. Uh, you know, you're a baseball fan, and sign stealing has been a part of the game forever, uh, but not electronically and and that's that's what's so far over the line if, if you can detect you know what's going on from second base or a third base coach can legitimately figure out what signs are uh by just studying uh, the opposition that's one thing and and i think anybody in the game of baseball will say that's fair if, if we're bad enough that you can figure out our signs go ahead take them and uh we, it's on us to try to figure that out and then react appropriately but to do it electronically 
uh, and then signal hitters and uh, signal hitters via the trash can or whatever else was going on. It's brutal. And, and I think it's, uh, you know, there's a trust factor there that I, I think has been hit at by, by these actions. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully this stuff can get cleaned up because I, I, I think it's, it's so far over the line. You know, we've, we've lived through this whole steroid era and everything else that's gone on in the game. I mean, this, this really speaks to something happening within the competition that, that just doesn't sit right, I think, with anybody uh, that, that enjoys sports. It almost, to me, Joe, this is somebody, I'm somebody who, uh, you know, for seven years on a travel girls softball team used to give signals. And, you know, it was, I'd stand in, in the third base coach's box and there were two or three teams that we played regularly that I know, this is how sick it was in New Jersey girls softball, who I know uh, occasionally would come to our games, not just my team, but other teams, to scout us. And there was a guy, one guy in our league scouted signs. So every time we played that team, I changed the signs. And it really, I mean, these are, these are young girls. These are actually preteen girls. So it really wasn't that hard. And I'm not, I'm making light of it in a little way, but in not, not necessarily in a big way. Isn't it possible in baseball that a bunch of teams kind of got lazy with the signs and the signs you were giving in August of, uh, you know, of say 2016, if you only played that team once or twice a year, if they're in another division, are the same signs they're given the next year. That would strike me to be a little bit lazy. Now, again, I have no idea if that's the case or not, but I don't think signs are that hard to change, quite honestly. No, they're not. But, uh, you know, again, if, if you're doing it, from a television camera trained on just the person giving the signs and you're decoding it that way from the beginning part of the game and, and getting them by the end of the game, you know, it, it, it also speaks to how slow the game is. And, and I think kind of the paranoia of the stealing of signs has led to a slower pace of play, but I, I could blow your mind right now. Maybe you're aware of this. Uh, I mean, you're Peter King for God's sake. You probably are, but, uh, Greg Maddox back in the day with the Atlanta Braves was so friggin' smart. He grew up in Vegas. He kind of had that card players mentality. Like I played gin against friends of mine and I am a brutal card player. They send cars to come get me because at the end of hands, I'm still trying to catch up <laughs> and friends of mine will go, yeah, well you, you're looking for my King and I know you want my King and that's going to complete your, I'm like, how, how the hell do you know that? But that's how Greg Maddox grew up. And so when he was rolling with the Atlanta Braves, all their signs were dummy signs and his next pitch, this is how forward thinking he was. He would catch the ball coming back from his catcher. And that would determine where he caught the ball, what the next pitch was that he was going to throw. So if he reached over to his left and he could shift his body to do it, it was going to be a fastball. If he caught it in his chest, it was going to be a changeup. And if he caught it over to his right, it was going to be a breaking ball, whatever it was. But that, I mean, we're talking about the 90s. And and so now this has been going on through the history of time in baseball. But again, this is this is alerting hitters in the batter's box from people not involved in the game, looking at getting signs from a television feed of the catcher and and that's that's not cool, and that that's not that's not what this is about. That's not what the game's about. And uh, you know, I again, I don't know if if it progressed beyond banging on a plastic trash can next to a table off to the side of the Astros dugout. I don't know if it went to the next level. I don't know if they were able to electronically send. Uh, you know, you start hearing that the more people you talk to in the game. If that's out there. I, I have no idea. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm anxious to see, you know, the depth of, of where this went because for the commissioner to, to suspend the manager is a hell of a guy, AJ Hinch and a really great manager and the GM who obviously built a, a little mini dynasty there in Houston uh, for, for them to get suspended for a year and then subsequently get fired. 
there, there must be a lot there and a lot more than we know about as we sit here in the early part of uh, 2020. You know, Joe, I was just going to, I was, I've got 48 questions about football, but there's one other question I really wanted to ask you about this thing. I have never met AJ Hinch. I don't know AJ Hinch, but I have always thought that if you give gave me my choice of all 30 managers in Major League Baseball, AJ Hinch would be on a very short list of guys I would want to hire. So you deal with him obviously at the highest level of the business, and I wonder what do you think of AJ Hinch? Well, I it's a tough question to answer because like I said, I mean, he, he is, he's one of my favorites. He's a, he's a friend. He's a good guy. Uh, he's brilliant. He wickedly smart, went to Stanford. I think he, he has shown the ability and, and I'll, I'll answer your question cause I know why you're asking it, but he's shown the ability of balancing analytics and kind of the information from above with the information that he's getting with his eyes and his senses from below from players in his dugout or in his bullpen. And I think he has shown the ability to throw the numbers out when need be and, and ride a hot hand in the bullpen. Uh, there, there's a lot there. And, and I think he, he's got a really good touch with all of that. Um, from what I, I read and from what I heard from Jim Crane, the owner, this was not his, baby but he didn't do enough to stop it and and i think that's where his guilt lies um i can understand it if if players are are uh are adamant that they want this information and i'm sure it was something that didn't sit well with him but i can only tell you from what i know and from what i know dealing with other managers and sitting in their office and getting a feel for what they have in that game and how they're planning like for a playoff series and what the thoughts are for later in the series and you know how he gets crunches all the numbers but then crunches the personalities and everything else together uh, he of of the 30 managers for me taking this out of the equation because he didn't put an end to it or stop it he'd be one he wouldn't be on a short list he'd be one that's real. I'm glad to hear you say that. Just from watching him from very much from afar, he also seems to be a human being as well. You know, a kind of, the guy who you'd probably like uh, to have a beer with. But but anyway, yeah. I one agree. other question he, yeah, about he, analytics. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's a good he's a good family guy. He's got two daughters. I'm sure you know there'll be yeah. conversations with them now. Uh, you know, because he, again, this strikes at the very core of, uh, you know, decency in the game and, you know, being a competitor and doing it the right way. And yeah, again, if he didn't blow the whistle or put an end to this, however it started, uh, then he's guilty. And I'm sure he'd be the first guy to tell you that I, I personally, I just hope he gets another crack at it because he's too good of a baseball man, too too smart. I do too. And too good of a person to to not get another crack at it eventually. The Cleveland Browns evidently are going to use analytics very heavily uh, with their new coach, Kevin Stefanski. And this was, you know, of all the things we could talk about today, you're somebody who probably sees the use of analytics in baseball as close as almost anyone. And I just wonder, can it work in football? Should it work in football? Should owners be as passionately interested and, and, and general manager types and God, here's Paul D Podesta in Cleveland now being heavily involved in that team. And he's a money ball guy. So I just wonder when you heard that about Cleveland, do you think that analytics is a crossover topic uh, to football and can it be effective at all in football? Yeah, I, I think all those tools are worthwhile. And I, I think when you present that other teams are using analytics, I think any owner uh, who cares about winning is saying, well, that, that's an advantage for them. I want that advantage too. And we're going to go down that path as well. I, and so I think there, there are, you know, really good aspects to analytics. You see it in baseball, and I think we will see it in football. But to me, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. And when I talk to 
Doug Peterson about this, and I've talked to Sean Payton about this, two guys that, uh, that have analytics involved with their, with their game day uh, decision-making. The, the analytics is there. And, you know, when to go for it uh, on, uh, for a two-point conversion or, uh, you know, certain cut-and-dried things, analytics can really help. Now, I don't know how it applies to the actual game with regard to player versus player, you know, receiver versus corner. What, I, I don't know how far that's going to go in the NFL. But I do know that when I've talked to both Sean and Doug, analytics takes a backseat to gut uh, on a lot of these fourth yeah. down tries. Nobody's gone for it more than Doug Peterson since he came into the league on fourth down. And I said, where do you sit on that? And he said, I, I was sitting in the very spot I'm, I'm uh, sitting in as I talked to you. He said that that's, that's gut and it's, how are we rolling? How's our offensive line handling their defensive line? You know, is, is there, is there momentum uh, piece to this is is it is it one where if we don't make it the momentum against is going to be so overwhelming all that stuff is churning around in his head his heart his gut and that's how he ends up making his decision there's a feel it, it's not it's not just numbers there's got to be a feel otherwise you you would have a right. computer sit there on the sideline or you'd have a computer uh, sit there in the corner of the dugout there there's you cannot eliminate the human aspect of it. And so if the numbers say, and an office offsite gets word to a dugout and says, we've got to take this picture out because this other guy in the bullpen is the right guy for the situation against the specific hitter. Well, maybe the manager knows that a, the, the starter said under no circumstances, take me out. I, this is the best I've felt all year. Or the guy who they could theoretically bring out of the bullpen just had a big fight with his, wife or whatever it is, didn't sleep well. He's a little bit under the weather. He's got a look in his eye that maybe tells the manager or the head coach, I'm not the right guy for this situation. I don't know what the analytics were for Derek Jeter over the years. I don't know if it said he was the best hitter. I don't know if it said he was the best shortstop, but I guarantee you if the bases were loaded and my team led by one run in the ninth inning of a game seven of a world series and somebody was going to hit a rocket at somebody in the infield, I'd want it hit to Derek Jeter. Whatever the analytics be damned, I, I know that Derek Jeter would say, hit it to me because I'll make the play. And that's never not in the equation. So you can't take that out. You can use it, but you can't live by it. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. It's funny. I I, um, I went to the, the Green Bay game uh, on Sunday thinking that I was going to see something a little bit different than what I saw. And it kind of speaks to analytics a little bit. This was the worst year that Aaron Rodgers had numerically in his life. In fact, that, that ESPN uh, QBR, you know, not just the, the classic old passer rating, but their QBR had him in the low fifties. You know, he was like the 17th guy in the league or something this year. And I really wondered, okay, is he losing his mojo? And I go to that game the other day, and I just was absolutely, totally blown away by the deft touch on his passes and knowing that at the end of the game, if we give the ball back to Russell Wilson, he's going to win the damn thing. We cannot give the ball to Russell Wilson. We've got to convert. And so he makes two or three throws down the stretch, including the one on third and eight, to Devontae Adams that that should go into his time capsule of great of 10 best throws he ever made considering all things the situation so I get what you're saying about analytics and about everything that people look at when they look at players but I'll tell you what Aaron Rodgers is still an absolute threat and it's why I kind of like the 49ers this weekend, obviously, you know, because of what happened in that first game and their pass rush. But I'm not putting it past Aaron Rodgers to make this a, a game at the two-minute warning of the fourth quarter. Yeah, I, everything you just said is exactly how I feel. And if, if Aaron Rodgers is 17th on that list, that means that statistically or analytically 16 guys are better than Aaron Rodgers, and and I would say I'm with you. The throw he made to Devontae Adams, 
at a margin of error of oh of, my god i mean it, it's just impossible i mean the throw down the sideline dropped in great coverage everything on the line you don't make it you're going to give two minutes to russell wilson and he's going to beat you you're right and then the throw he made just sliding in the pocket and and, and getting avoiding bodies and throwing almost sidearm and and I don't know where Jimmy Graham ranks on the the analytical scale at tight end. Yeah, that was that a was great a one too. <laughs> that was a hell of a catch by a guy who I'm sure yeah. is not top ten anymore on that same list. So when when the game's on the line, you know, give me those magical kind of guys. And Aaron Rodgers is still that guy. So that's why I say, you know, it, maybe it helps when you're doing a contract. Maybe it helps. Uh, in the middle part of a game in September. But when it's all on the line and everything you've worked for comes down to one throw on a third down, you know, it's why it's why the rest of the country, you know, gags because they think that all I do is, you know, throw bouquets at Aaron Rodgers. Well, there's a reason because he's different than other guys that we cover <laughs> week to week. And he does different, he does different things and he steps up because he's sure of his ability. And he checked out of a play, went to that, delivered it and they won the game and that's why they're playing this week. And, and so you, you can use analytics, but I think you can die by it as well. The craziest thing about that. I spent, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes or so with um, Matt LaFleur after the game. And, and I just went in and I just said, I took out my fanboy card and I said, that throw to Aaron Rodgers, wait until you watch it or that throw by Aaron Rodgers to Adams on third and eight. All I can say is wait till you watch it. And by the way, I went back and watched it a couple more times yesterday. And your voice on it is absolutely classic, you know, because, and I forget what your words were, but you could hear it in your voice. Oh, come on. There's no way that he just threw that ball 30 yards in the air, dropped on a dime. It was incredible. And LaFleur said basically, man, I can't wait to go watch it. You know, he was he yeah. was excited to go back and watch it from from uh from all the different angles. And you know, for people you you clearly would know this, but I mean Aaron Rodgers is kind of a I don't know, a mysterious figure, at least to me, because he he can be very persnickety and all that stuff, but I just simply do not deny his football brilliance. And I just, I think as long as he can stay healthy and play the way he manages his body now. And, you know, he used to have some, and he called it once to me, he used to have some ice cream fat on him, you know, but I don't know that he has much, uh, much fat of any sort on his body anymore because he just has managed to take care of himself at almost a Brady type level. Yeah, well, there's too there's too much money in it. First of all, to not uh, for these guys that are that good that can play into their early 40s, maybe mid 40s, if you believe what Tom says, or you know, if you if you read the quotes by Drew Brees a couple of years ago, uh, you know, there there's re, there's good reason to keep your body as as uh, well conditioned as these guys do, and. Yeah, I, I think what I said was what I and I only know this because I, I saw it on a highlight uh, that I came across. I'm not like rehearsing my lines uh, from the game that I just did, but it was like, what a throw, what a catch, what a time for it. And it was a perfect, it was a perfect yeah, three. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. the perfect time for a great throw and a great catch when, when the game was on the line and, and you, you cover these games and have a lot longer than I have, but you don't, you don't get those singular moments every week, especially in a divisional playoff game where it's like, wow, that, that just won the ball game. That might not have totally won it, but for the most part, it got them to midfield or beyond a little bit or close to it with two minutes left. And, and it would have taken something miraculous from Russell Wilson. Then they get the next one and the game's over. So I, yeah, it, it was special. And, and anytime you go to Lambeau and he's playing or before him far, you know, the odds are you're probably going to see something like that. Coolest thing that night, I was sitting there in the press box afterwards till maybe about one fifteen or one thirty, and there weren't that many people left. And at one point I look out and there's a snow globe right outside the window. And I said, this is, uh, I, I, I only wish it was snowing like this during the game. It would have been a lot of fun, but there's something about going to Lambeau 
and seeing a January game in Lambeau. I'm just a sucker for it. I don't know. That was really fun well, the other day. Yeah, I don't know how you couldn't be. Uh, I feel the same way. And to, to be able to sit there and open those windows and call that game and present it, we had a blimp shot that uh, that showed it a couple times coming back from break. And they had, it looked like there were, you know, low-hanging clouds and, uh, you know, kind of it almost looked like smoke around the lights. And then that place all lit up and everything else dark around it uh in green bay just makes it just a beautiful scene and you know i I think close to it was old candlestick and kind of the camera angles there and growing up watching joe montana on tv just light up the world uh and and kind of the look of that old stadium and now we're going to levi's stadium which just hosted its first 49ers playoff game and uh you know they're 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 primed and ready. I'm with you. I mean, I, I, I think Aaron Rodgers makes them dangerous, but uh, the entire team, everything that the 49ers have going on, there's a reason they're a seven point favorite and they're going to be awfully hard to beat. And they got healthy at the right time. And, and it all matched up to what should be a, a really memorable game and maybe memorable run for this uh, Kyle Shanahan team. Hey Joe, thanks a million for doing this. It was fun talking to you. All right, buddy. Anytime, Peter. Thank you. I want to talk for a moment about some of the other stuff. Uh, It's like prime season for really interesting content on NBCSports.com. Chris Sims Unbuttoned and the PFTPM podcast are both really good this week. I love Chris Sims' breakdown of the playoff games. You'll really want to listen to both of those. We've got a cool extended feature on 49ers tight end George Kittle. That's on the NBC Sports YouTube page. Some really interesting and enlightening stuff from him and his family. You know, his dad was a uh, an Iowa Hawkeye a generation or, or so before George Kittle was. Uh, just some really interesting stuff about a guy one of the new and bright stars in the National Football League. And also, when you go on the YouTube page, a nice little feature with Patrick Mahomes and Brett Favre throwing the football around. Now, I won't brag about that, but I'm pretty proud of that one. That was one of mine. And uh, that's the kind of good evergreen material that you're going to see when you go to NBCSports.com and look at Uh, our YouTube channel with all of the NBC sports stuff that just makes you a smarter fan. And now my conversation with Harry Carson of the Fritz Pollard Alliance. Back on the podcast, so happy to be joined by Harry Carson, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, former linebacker for the New York Giants. I covered Harry Carson in his prime in the 1980s as a Beat writer covering the Giants, got to know him some uh, and uh, have remained uh, close to him, somewhat close to him through the rest of his life. And I was very, very glad to see that that uh, Harry Carson was appointed executive director of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which I think is an absolutely uh, invaluable piece of the puzzle and uh, a huge sort of lobbying aid for so many causes, uh, probably the foremost of which is today. Uh, You know, I I would call it now (laughs) sort of the plight of African-American coaches uh, in the NFL. And so, Harry, thanks a lot for joining me. Peter, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Um, Let me correct you. I'm uh, have ascended to the role of chairman. Rod Graves is now executive director of the Fritz Pollard okay. Alliance. And, uh, you know, we've been working on this issue for God, about 16, 17 years since the Rooney Rule was uh, was enacted. So, um, you know, we have good years and then we have some not so good years. Yeah, I think, Harry, the way I sort of look at this, I wrote about it in my column this week, and and I said the year the Rooney Rule was enacted there in 2003, uh, the NFL had 
three black coaches, one black general manager, and no majority black owners. And those numbers are precisely the same in 2020, yeah. or will be precisely yeah. the same. And uh, that has to be a little bit disturbing to someone who basically uh, has helped lead the fight to increase the ranks of uh, minority coaches. Well, it is disappointing that we have not, um, uh, we, that we don't have better numbers than, than you see. We have four minority coaches who are in place. Mike Tomlin, Ron Rivera, Brian Flores, and uh, Anthony Lynn. And, um, you know, we've been up to as many as I think seven or eight. But eight, we're yeah. not, de- yeah, we're, we're not going to be deterred. We're not going to uh, look at this as a setback or anything like that. We're going to continue to do what we can to advocate on behalf of minority coaches to basically even the playing field if possible, if that is indeed all possible, to give them a fair shot at um, becoming uh, head coaches and general managers in the National Football League. That is what we are, what we've been created to do. And that's what we do. As I said, uh, you know, there have been some, some good things that we can sort of look to, but then there are so many more things that we really need to work on. You know, I proposed a couple of things this week, Harry, two of which um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on. One is to perhaps extend the Rooney rule to coordinators as well, uh, just to give guys who have not uh, maybe interviewed or have not gone down that road I mean, Joe Judge with the Giants absolutely, totally came out of nowhere. As Mm -hmm. I said, the day he was named, uh, I could not pick. I've never talked to Joe Judge, and I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I, I didn't. I don't. I didn't. The day he was named, I said, I do not know what Joe Judge looks like. I just, Mm -hmm. I've never seen him. I mean, I've seen him, but in the Patriots, in the as you know, in the Belichick way, there can be a lot of anonymous people in that organization. Mm But so yeah. so there's the possibility of extending the Rooney rule to coordinators and also to help increase the number of minority coaches at those what I would call pipeline positions, offensive quality control, quarterback coach, offensive coordinator that you mandate that every team that has a new coach has to hire one minority coach in those pipeline positions, at least one out of the three. Now, that is a that would be almost a revolutionary thing where you're mandating that uh, for for an owner to do. But I, I keep thinking, how is it going to change unless people are forced? And I'm curious, two coordinators and maybe one out of the three in the in what I would call the pipeline positions, because owners love offensive coaches, do you have mm-hmm. any feeling about whether either one of those might make sense? Well, I think that makes sense, but I think we've proposed that with the league in the past, and that has uh, not necessarily been a uh, an, an issue that uh, they have been willing to promote. You know, let's keep in mind that uh, we as an organization, we work uh, with the league and and the National Football League uh, cannot mandate anything to the owners of, of the member clubs to to adopt. So, you, you know, it's been a situation where um, I, I have to say, in all honesty, the league has been very cognizant of this issue and they're very concerned about this issue, but you cannot force men and women who own, who are billionaires, who own franchises to do certain things that they don't want to do. It has to be up to the owners. And that is the beauty of the ruling rule because it wasn't about um, uh, individuals on the outside promoting that that was that was Dan Rooney he was the one who promoted the Rooney rule and and 
when it went up for a vote, all of the owners voted for it. But now it seems like everybody's trying to circumvent the Rooney Rule and do what they want to do uh, in regards to you know hiring of minorities at the upper echelon uh, position. So, you know, there are individuals who are in the pipeline now that um, are, are learning and, and will get better at their, their craft, their, their skill. But still, it's about, you know, those owners, you know, taking a chance. And I'll, I'll be so bold as, as to say this. I, I think the, the individuals who are being interviewed, they have the right stuff. And you look at uh, Andy Reid and you, you know, talk about Eric Bieniemy. He knows what Eric Bieniemy is, is ready to do. But I think with the owners, while they know that Eric Bieniemy is an outstanding coach or coordinator, they don't necessarily want to see Eric Bieniemy or any other African American or minority uh, coach become the face of their organization. The, 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 the knowledge is, is there, but I think there's something more at stake here, and I think it's because of these owners wanting to have their team look a certain way. And that's just me speaking. I'm not necessarily speaking on behalf of the Fritz Pollard Alliance. That's me speaking as, a, as an, an observer. You know, when I played so many years ago, as you might recall, Peter, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of black coaches who were there. And I had the opportunity to play for some of the best. I played for Marty Schottenheimer, who taught me football, how to play the linebacker position. Um, I played for Bill uh, Parcells. I played for Bill Belichick. And I could have, with all of that knowledge of the game, I could have gone into coaching. But I didn't see individuals who looked like me. I mean, there were individuals who were who were coaches. They were assistant coaches, but there were no head coaches at that time. And quite frankly, I'm sort of at that point now where I see um, there aren't as many uh, African-American. I'll just back up. It's not as diverse as it should be, given the time frame of where we are right now. So what, if anything, Harry, do you think can be done right now? Is there anything that the Fritz Pollard Alliance is going to attempt to do in the coming months to try to bridge this gap, to try to improve it? Well, we're going to continue to work on this issue. It is um, uh, mission one for the Alliance, and we're going to work closer with um, the league to remedy this problem. But at the end of the day, it really boils down to the owners and the various teams around the league to at least, uh, and and not come up with sham type uh, interviews just to check the box. If you're uh, replacing a head coach, uh, we got to find ways to strengthen the Rooney Rule so that it can't be circumvented by owners who will extend a 10-year contract and a hundred million dollar um, it, it, to to uh, to a coach without before even uh, uh, interviewing a minority candidate. You got to find ways to put more more bite into violating the Rooney Rule. It, it might be a stretch, but I think that's what we have to do uh, in conjunction with the league. Do you what what kind of keeps you coming back, Harry? What gives you any hope that this situation is going to get better? Well, I think what keeps me going personally is being a part of an organization that definitely is advocating on behalf of a greater sense of diversity, whether it's racial diversity or gender diversity, to give everybody an opportunity to 
work and play within the National Football League. Um, as I said, I probably would have been an outstanding coach at some point, but quite frankly, way back then, I didn't see those faces. Now, when you see those faces, I, I think there are so many young people who are playing the game who would like to know that at some point they can become a head coach in the National Football League and not uh, be eliminated because of the color of their skin. So, you know, I would like to see more inclusion within those positions um, in the National Football League front offices all around the country. Yeah, I think those are good uh, good hopes to have. Um, you, you, you can't I, I really give up. That you, at the league you, meetings you can't this give up. Year, you have you know. to keep moving. Yeah. And you have to keep grinding even when things don't go your way. You know, we've been disappointed in the past and what we've done is, you know, get back on the bike when we were knocked off with the loss of certain um, individuals. Um, and you have to get back on and get back on the bike and you have to keep riding and, and pushing for um, individuals who don't necessarily have a voice. And so um, that's what we're going to continue to do. I really can't imagine how frustrating it, mu it must be for coaches who feel like they uh, have accomplished something and who have been very good assistants for a long time. And I'm speaking of B enemy specifically. And then he sees the Carolina Panthers and the New York giants basically, yeah. you know, go crazy after two guys who have a total of one year as an assistant coach in the NFL. Uh, yeah. I mean, in terms of the highest uh, that they've gone to Joe judge and, uh, and uh, uh, Matt Rule have been assistants in the NFL, as has Bienemy, and Bienemy seemingly has the kind of resume that owners would want to have on the Andy Reid tree, uh, being basically one on one with Patrick Mahomes the last two years. That that's what to me must be particularly frustrating. Yeah, it's something that is pretty obvious for everybody to see and you scratch your head and you wonder hmm, what's with that you know you, uh, you know for the longest time it was about being a coordinator um, you had defense coordinators who uh were um you know considered for uh head coaching positions then it went more toward offense and now it's it's about you know special teams and so who, you know, what kind of barriers are you going to put up there to get people to sort of hoop, uh, jump through uh, to qualify for being, you know, head coaching material? Uh, you know, you, you look at Tampa and you look at Bruce Arians and, you know, he has faith that those coaches of color can coach, you know, Byron Leftwich and Todd Bowles. Uh, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that he um, has put his faith in, in the hands of, of those guys who really have good intentions and who are really good uh, coaches. Todd Bowles, I, I really enjoyed Todd when he was with the Jets, and unfortunately it didn't work out for him as a head coach with the Jets. But I admire him as a as a coordinator, but also – as a head coach, and I think he'll get another shot at playing in the National Football League, uh, coaching in the National Football League. But also, you know, you look at, you know, some of the other guys who are out there, like a Leslie Frazier, who I think was the force behind that Buffalo Bills uh, defense this year. I think he right. will get another opportunity to to be a head coach. and. So we're disappointed, but we know that the pieces are there to be had. It's just up to uh, the owners who um, are a little shy about uh, picking someone to be the face of their organization. Harry, the last thing I would ask you, as a former player, and obviously there are more uh, minority position coaches now than when you played 
back in the 80s. But I just, I wonder as a player, what do you think it says to a player when ownership uh, in a league that, you know, is 70% approximately, give or take a percentage point, 70% African-American, how do players on that team feel when in front of the room starting in training camp is a black person and not one of the many in the sea of white people who've been chosen to coach in the NFL over the years? Now, I didn't get the gist of your question. Is it that for for me? How, how, do, how do you think... Yeah, how do you think the average player feels in a league that is 70% African-American? How does a player walk into a meeting room and how does he feel when he looks up and he sees a black man at the, at the head of the room coaching his team after for years and years and years, the vast majority of coaches in the league have been white? Well, I, I think that, you know, players are going to play for their coaches, but I think on a more personal level, if if an African-American player sees um, an African-American coach standing before him, I think he feels a little bit more accountable because there are so many things that have bind uh, players and coaches together. Most, most players and, and coaches in the National Football League probably come from the same environment, so they can sort of relate to one another and understand that you have to be extra, you know, good at what you do to ascend to that position. I also think that, you know, they are going to work just a little bit harder, not saying that they don't, but I think they would work a little bit harder to put their coach in a favorable position and of, of not losing his job at the end of the season and so forth. And, and the other thing that I'll share with you is there are so many um, young African-American men who are playing in the national football league who might need some guidance and direction on the personal level. And I think that is what a black head coach, in my opinion, can bring to the table of, how can you inspire a player both on and off the field to be the best that you can be, whether it be as a player or whether it be as a man? So, you know, that's where I sort of come from, from, from the question that, that you've asked, if, if I'm interpreting, ter- interpreting that in the right way. Harry Carson of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, so glad you could join me. And uh, I just, I hope that the owners this year at the league meetings in March uh, not only take the problem seriously, but start to enact real measures, uh, whether it be more uh, uh, coordinator interviews, whether it may be uh, two head coach uh, interviews of minority candidates each year instead of one, that they do something because this is a problem that cries out to be fixed. Definitely, Peter. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and share with you. My thanks to Joe Buck and Harry Carson. Interesting, stimulating conversations. So thanks for joining me this week. I look forward to recapping the championship games. Looking forward to the Super Bowl next week. 